Kia ora and welcome to the Marlborough Book Festival podcast, the place where you can hear writers talk about their work, their lives and the inspiration behind their writing. I'm Claudia, the treasurer on the committee, and today I'm delighted to be introducing the wonderful Sharon Murdoch, speaking to Nikki MacDonald. Sharon Murdoch started cartooning in her 50s and in a few short years became the first woman to regularly draw political cartoons for a daily newspaper in New Zealand. She discusses her life, her award-winning work, and her drive to draw attention to social justice and the joy of drawing cats and dogs. Please enjoy Sharon Murdoch speaking to Nikki MacDonald. I'm Nikki MacDonald and I'm going to be your host today and very lucky to be in conversation with Sharon Murdoch. Uh, there will be about 10 minutes of questions at the end, so uh, yeah, do get your thinking caps on. I'm sure there's plenty of things that you would love to ask Sharon. Uh, unfortunately, we Sharon's books are so popular that um, they are not currently available, but... <laughs> Uh, she did do some gorgeous illustrations for How to Walk a Dog, so you can see her work and um, in, in that book. A big thank you to our sponsor for this morning's session. If you're game enough to be drinking at 9.30 on, on a Sunday morning, good on you. <laughs> so a big thank you to um, Dog Point, who are sponsoring this session. Uh, now, stuff cartoonist Sharon Murdoch is New Zealand's first regular political cartoonist. She came to cartooning late, but quickly made up for lost time, winning Cartoonist of the Year in 2016, 2017 and 2018. The first year she was a finalist, she was so sure she wasn't going to win that she didn't turn up to the awards. We had to bring her after she... Uh, after she actually got the award and she came running down. I think you were at the library cafe, weren't you? No, I think I was having toasted sandwiches at home. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, the world clearly has uh, woken up to Sharon's talent, so it's fantastic to have her here. Sh um, Sharon also cre created the popular Munro cartoon, um, illustrated, as I say, How to Walk a Dog, and has published two collections of her cartoons. Please join me in welcoming Sherry Murdoch. Now, we are incredibly lucky to have Sharon here today because while we've probably all had a bit of a weird year, Sharon's has been absolutely horrific. And so we're just going to start by Sharon's just going to talk a little bit about the year that's been. <laughs> um, well, hello. And... Uh, I'm going to read this for reasons that will become obvious as it goes on. But, um, and Nikki did warn me not to talk for more than two minutes, <laughs> but I'm quite fond of long-winded stories, so. <laughs> um, but this one involves a book and a brain and a birthday. So, in Robert Say's 2014 memoir of a heart attack, the ambulance officer asks him, have you had a good day? He says, nobody, by the way, during this not so much interminable as boundless night, asks if I've had a good weekend, let alone a good life. In February, I had a brain aneurysm repaired, or more particularly shored up so it wouldn't rupture. The last thing I remember the anaesthetist saying to me was, 
what do you do for a living? I'm a cartoonist, I said, feeling that this was an unlikely answer. When I surfaced from that thick, drug-induced sleep in the neurology-intensive care, anchored by tubes and bags, a man was standing beside my bed. He was wearing his underpants over his thermals and he was bare-chested, staring at me like he was trying to understand what I was. I, I was telling someone about this last night and they thought I had imagined him, but uh, I, I hadn't. He was there. <laughs> um, I had gone to sleep in one world and woken up in quite another. The surgeons had told my husband and my daughter that it had gone well, but they didn't realise that a blood clot had lodged in my brain and by the next morning it was evident that I had suffered a stroke. Um, in the days that followed, bruises spread all over my body. I needed help to walk, I mangled words, I was hot all the time and then I was cold. That's like uh, your autonomic nervous system controls all that stuff, so it goes to pot. I, this is very common, and I know that there are people here who will have suffered strokes, so my heart is with you. <laughs> um, I had lost part of my peripheral vision. I missed things, toilet, bowl, toilet paper missed the bowl, cups missed the table. I couldn't reach my head when I showered. Dressing required a lie down afterwards. I held my drooping eyebrow up with white tape and I cried for short overcut minutes and then hiccuped ridiculously. <laughs> In the afternoons, I'd spent my time picking up dry macaroni with blue plastic tweezers and clipping clothes pegs around the rim. Hello. <laughs> around the rim of plastic container. Uh, this is in the. This is a few days after, and I do the crossword every morning. So I had attempted to do it, and it, I couldn't. Um, then I I had moved. They moved me out of intensive care, and I moved into a room of my own, or actually a room with a roommate. Uh, the neurology ward is quite a strange place because people, they are, brain tumours especially make people do quite strange things, you know, and um, so the man who was standing by my bed when I woke up, he had all of a sudden, he had a brain tumour and he wandered around like that and only looked to his left and they had someone who travelled with them, you know, so they would move them on from places. But then I got a roommate. First there was a woman who arrived at midnight with assorted bags. She wanted a cup of tea, a different nightgown, a shower, the tinny sound of a transistor radio. The second night at 10 o'clock, she saw a girl climbing over our seventh floor window, said a nurse was coming around with a whistle, accused another of letting in thieves and murderers. At 11.30, they moved her to a bed near the nurse's station. At midnight, they wheeled in a man. He made lewd jokes to the nurses, and after they left, said, bitch, 
and he played Candy Crush in the sound of tinkling gems. At two, he started masturbating, and I limped around to the nurse's station and asked for a cup of Milo. <laughs> this. The nurse had a brain made out of flowers tattooed on her ankle. When I had returned, he had finished and gone back to paying Candy Crush, and I tried to read a crime novel by Denzel Mayrick that I had bought along with the London Review of Books for what was supposed to be a one night in hospital, but I couldn't make sense of the words. As dawn came, I sat on the edge of my bed, watching the light edge over Newtown. John Street intersection at street level is tawdry and tired, but from the seventh floor it was radiant and sun slanting between long shadows. On the seventh day, I went outside. The Wellington wind, that almost constant companion on walks, is irritating, and some days it is hard to think straight. But this wind, the wind of seven days, sealed in the hospital, was tender. It gently puffed on my skin, and I stood in my pyjamas, eyes closed, holding on to a planter, and then I lurched back inside. And when I went home, uh, I was supposed to go home and then go into uh, rehab at Kenapuru. Um But then I decided I didn't want to go. <laughs> so I, I set up my own little program of improvement at home. Um, at first when I went home I was largely silent. Uh, I had aphasia. Yeah, that's an inability or an impaired ability to understand or produce speech as a result of brain damage. Um, I, when I was rung about, just to remind me, that I had accepted this thing to do at the book festival and I told the woman on the phone that I had had a stroke and I was still going to do it. <laughs> and she must have been thinking, oh my God. <laughs> To learn to write again, I copied the stories of Joy Williams, 99 stories about God. Half a page took me an hour. It was halting and plodding and one deliberate letter after another. Drawing I put off. Um, I, I was scared. They say, if anyone here draws, there is uh, quite often, and I imagine it's like it was writing, a fear of um, starting, and it was especially so. I was really um, anxious isn't the right word. I, I was scared that I would not be able to draw, and I wouldn't be a cartoonist anymore. So I put it off and then eventually I'd set up an easel in the front room and I began with big drawings, big things like a rhinoceros and an elephant, and worked down to smaller things. Oh, where am I? Oh, this, this was uh, a drawing I had done about, uh, about the end of my time in hospital. And I was concentrating very hard. That, that was the best I could do and I, that was why I was scared. 
Um, then were you actually was your was had you you'd lost yeah. feeling and movement yeah. in your yeah. yeah. I yeah. Um, I think that was my copy of Rembrandt, so I was making progress. Uh, then at about four weeks, I got angry at everything. I kicked the dog's bowl across the room, swearing. I threw the keys for the car that I wasn't allowed to drive. I thought tomorrow will be better. But the next day I woke up just as angry, infuriated with my hand, my leg, that I would trip over, my forearms that ached at night, the unreliable speech, the hesitations, the run-up to a word that wouldn't come. Thoughts that I just saw the tale of disappearing out the door, leaving me alone, vacant, being reduced to calling the dog the hairy thing. The third day I woke up and the anger like an outgoing tide had left me. Having given up on Denzel Mayrick, I picked up What Days Are For by Robert to say. In his recounting of his heart attack, he goes on from the question about how his day has been. He says, needless to say, nobody checks to see if I finally read Proust as I vowed I would before I died. <laughs> now, Proust's novel, Proust's novel, Remembrance of Things Past, all 12 volumes plus guidebook, was sitting in our front room. Shortly before going into hospital, I had bought the set, seven volumes in some other editions, published by Chateau and Windus in 1957, with blue and red wrappers and strange illustrations by Philippe Julian. This, this is one of them. Um, a bit like Cyril and a bit like Edward Gorey, hinting at some levity, which I initially didn't find. Um, <laughs> There were four illustrations per volume, which feels a little mean, juxtaposed with so many words. According to Google, there are 1,267,069 words in remembrance of things past. And if you read them at a rate of 300 words per minute, you could reckon on it taking you 45 hours and 27 minutes, providing you don't stop for meals and bathroom breaks. <laughs> But reading Proust was too hard and would take too much time, the 300 words per minute being purely notional and aspirational and certainly not doable. Of Proust's 3,031 pages, I had read just 30 before giving up. The books were sitting in a stack waiting to be sold. But without the routine of drawing cartoons, time had slowed down. Proust, with his endless probing, his digressions, his sly funniness, his obsessive detailing of everything. Then between volumes I started reading about Proust, Proust's overcoat about a French perfumer's obsession with collecting Proust's belongings, most particularly his heavy otter fur lined black coat that he was really without and which he covered himself in bed while writing. A Proust souvenir, a book of the real people on which some of his characters were based, Letters to a lady upstairs as a record of his correspondence with a neighbour whom he really met, and Proust and the Squid about neuroscience and reading. Aunt Leontine and her lime tea and the evocative Madeline and the hawthorn blossom. Memory and time. The feeling of wind 
puffing on my skin in the way John Street looked in the early morning sun. Priest took me out of myself and he brought me back to myself. So far, I am only up to book seven, and at a rate of 160 words per minute, with stopping for cups of tea and bathroom breaks, it looks like I'll be spending the rest of the year in his company, like a wonderful, obsessive friend. And do you know, by chance, it was Bruce's birthday on Friday. So happy birthday, Mr. Bruce. <laughs> Lovely. Thank you so much for sharing that. <laughs> I mean, was there a moment that you realised that it was going to be okay? You know, a, a drawing moment, I suppose, when you when you realised actually I can still do this. Uh, I think. Um, excuse me. There are going to be strange pauses through. <laughs> um, Probably when I did, oh, actually, uh, no. Um, when I did my first cartoon for the paper, and I thought I can do it of sorts, you know. It, mm. Certainly, I think that they have been simpler cartoons since returning to it. But I, I'm only doing two a week at the moment. I mean, you didn't start cartooning until your 50s, but you obviously came to art yeah. a lot earlier yeah. um, and kind of realised that that was your mm. thing. I mean, what are your earliest memories of, of drawing? Um, I remember I had a sleep out in Invercargill and I painted Rivendell above the doorway. <laughs> and... I remember decorating the walls with little paintings and drawings and and I used to I actually younger I used to colour in colouring in books and because I looked at books that had the colour out of red I don't know if you've seen them but things where the registration has been out, you know, mm -hmm. like you've got the black line and then you've got the colour that moves sideways and leaves a white line. And I really liked that look. So I would <laughs> colour in all of my colouring in books with this white line and the <laughs> colour shifted sideways. Oh, so you were an early abstract <laughs> kind of... <laughs> Um, I mean, yeah, so you grew up in Invercargill, which I think mm. you, somewhere along the line, gorgeously described as like Iceland without the epic poems. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, what, were your parents arty at all? You know, your, your father, David, was a carpenter. You, yeah. Marjorie worked in a shop, I think. I think um, they both would have been. I, I, his, my father's um, creativity, I think, came out in his building, you know, like mm -hmm. the things he made. And my mother, she, uh, she was very clever and she got a, she had to leave school because she got a travel sick and she had to travel 40 miles into well, Invercargill from Fairfax. And uh, she said that uh, art teacher had offered her a 
jacked up a job for her at a department store, or probably the only department store <laughs> in Invercargill was H&J Smith, and uh, as a ticket writer, and which I suspect meant that she did, you know, was quite good at drawing, mm. but she couldn't, she couldn't wait for that, and she took a job at the pie cart that used to be outside, I think it was outside the telephone exchange, and then eventually she got a job at the telephone exchange. But I, I did see a drawing she did recently, and it, it really was beautiful. Mm. Mm. So, I mean, you, you ended up studying design, so mm -hmm. you went to Wellington um, Polytech. I mean, mm. did you have any notion at that point of, of cartooning or, or illustrating? What did you think at, at that point that you were going to do with, with that skill? Uh, I had no inclination to do cartoons. Um, I, had, I loved design and... Um, I had this fantasy at 17 when I went to design school that one day I was going to go back to Invercargill in a little sports car with my folio in the back and that never happened but, <laughs> but um, there's still time yeah <laughs> but I I did love design so um, although I did illustration at design school, it was always design first. I mean, one of the things that you did um, while you were at design school was, I think in your final year, you did some work for Rape Crisis. Um, was that, you know, obviously there's a strong social justice theme that, that mm. runs through your work. I mean, was that your kind of first job in that space and how did that come about? Uh, yeah, uh, yes, it, it probably was. I had um, I had this tutor called Reg. I remember he had a wart in the back of his head and a parting, and I hated him. Like, and the first day we had him, I think it was like a confrontational. Um, it was our second year, and he was taking us for marketing, and. This whole notion was alien, you know, we were just... And I... He said, we should analyse something, you know, like who was buying whatever, and, mm -hmm. and, and he said, oh, we're, let's take coffee. And then he wrote up, let's put the person who buys coffee, and he put housewife on the board. And I took issue with it <laughs> and said that... Uh, that it wasn't the housewife, he would be more accurate to say the buyer for the household. And he went on to argue with me about this. That and, was unwise. Yeah. <laughs> and then forever after, he used to dismiss me at the beginning of the class, you know, like he would say, of course, Sharon will argue with this, but... And so I was, you know, the... But anyhow, I, he, he did do one good thing. He said to me at, 
it, when we had to do this final sort of thesis of a marketing campaign for um, whatever, and I think most of the class did socks and cars and motorbikes and things. And he said, well, you do realise you can do one of your social issues. And I had contacted, uh, I think it was Pregnancy Help, because they sounded like they were helping women mm. and I was going to do a campaign for them. But in fact, they were sponsored by SPAC and I had to quit that <laughs> and I started the um, thing for the Rape Crisis Centre. But yeah, that was... So where do you think that, you know, that strong social justice feminist element comes from? Um, I don't know. I, in my own family, um, you know, they were just getting by. So I mean, it's funny that my, uh, although my sister's not involved with, you know, um, issues, uh, she does work for the newspaper. Mm. So we have both found our way into the media and that part of our life. But I don't know where it comes from. You, at some stage, met um, cartoonist Trace Hodgson. How did that come about? Um, my father had just committed suicide oh. and um, Jace, uh, Jason, I was thinking about you working with you <laughs> later. <laughs> Trace came to uh, work at the in the newspaper art department where I was and he was quite early in his career with his cartooning, you know, like he was doing it uh, sort of after hours. Mm. And I, when we eventually uh, started living together, he used to say to me, I should try cartooning that there was no women doing political mm. cartooning. But I, um, he was so good, you know, like I don't know how many of you remember Trace Hodgson's work in The Listener, but I was intimidated by him and I, no, I didn't see a way to do it. And, and at the time I was working, I had a job um, I was designer for the City Art Gallery and then I had gone on to work with a place called the Wellington Media Collective. So mm -hmm. that was, the Media Collective was a really good place for me to work. It was a left-wing design group, mm -hmm. you know. So I, it was an easy fit for me, you know. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, did so did you actually, did you, Try any cartooning at, at that stage because you actually you actually you did a collaborative zine, didn't you? A one yeah. a one off kind. Yeah. of, I think it was called Rabbit. Yeah, uh, with Trace. Oh. So did that involve cartooning or was it more illustration? Or I remember what was when that? he first brought that zine up, and he, we were walking home, and he said, "If there was two things you wanted to do before you died, what what you know what was it going to be?" And he said he wanted to 
pull off a heist on an art gallery. <laughs> Not yours. No. <laughs> and he wanted to do a zine, like, or like, um, it was actually a newspaper. It was a full Oh, okay, format. rather than, I don't know if people yeah. know what a zine is. It's kind yeah. of like a low-tech. Yeah. Um, yeah, the, this was very high-tech. This was, oh, was it? Okay, off, right. This was offset printed and um, it had a big cartoon of his on the front with David Longy and fishnet tights and a, I can't remember what else. Probably not much else. <laughs> I mean, in, in 1999, I think you um, you went to South Africa with, with volunteer service abroad. Mm. Um, and while you were there, you, you actually produced some, edit, um, some educational cartoons, I think, mm. about things like AIDS. I mean, gosh, what, how did that come about and what, what was that like? I mean, that must have been uh, an amazing experience. That was, that was because um, I had gone to South Africa and I think it's quite frequently the way um, VSA had, uh, you know, the, the organisation that they're working with in the country describes what they want and VSA finds the person in New Zealand to do it. And they had described what they want, but when I got there, it was... Uh, they actually wanted someone who made videos. And... And... Print, you know, but in fact, we were going out into settlements, and they were quite often didn't have power or uh, running water or or anything. But what were they were getting was um, there was this uh, um, newspaper that went into the township in Dinsane, which was outside East London. Mm -hmm. In fact, it is a much bigger um, place than East London, but it was sort of a satellite place that was supposed to supply labour for, you know, or home, like, maids and, you know. Mm. But it had its own newspaper, Azitu, and then from there it would go into the settlements and people quite often wallpapered their walls uh, with the pages. And when I was visiting there, I said, well, maybe we could do this comic strip mm -hmm. without words, uh, because many of the people who lived in the settlements were illiterate. And um, so we... We produced. I I worked with an early childhood education centre, one run by coastal women, and um, so I worked with a local woman, Nolundi, who was really amazing, mm. and we produced this comic strip together of things. You, you know, the the women who ran the centre would write this this sort of. Uh, description of what it was supposed to say or picture mm. and we would do it. That must have been an amazing feeling, I don't know, of the power of of drawing as a language yeah. you know, without yeah. having to... And the first time constrained. that I went out into a village and saw them 
stuck up on the wall. Mm. That, that was quite neat. Mm. Mm. So you, you know, it was still kind of, I think you started at Wellington Newspaper, it was about 93, and it was, well, pretty much 20 years yeah. before you actually yeah. got your break yeah. cartooning. And I think that was when Tom Scott went, yeah. um, took a breather for, for six months. Yeah. Um, I guess, how did that happen? Did you just put your hand up and say, pick me, or...? I um, tried to put my hand up and say, pick me, and I kept doing it. Uh, but the deputy editor at the time decided that there were two young guys who had won a cartooning competition, so they gave the job to them. And But the editor at the Waikato Times said, he wasn't taking these cartoons and asked me if I would uh, do do their cartoons um, because I had by that stage had started doing Munro. You know that Munro started as just a filler on the page. One, I was only going to do one and it was... So Munro, for those yeah. of you who haven't seen it or don't get the Dominion Post, was a little... Um, Cat cartoon um, that run, runs with the crossword. Mm. Um, you know, you'll see some mm. examples um, mm. later on when we talk about cats and dogs. Mm. But um, do you remember what was what was your first cartoon? Do you remember? Uh, yes, it was. A, I think it was a woman who was holding a screaming baby, and it was about spies, and they were, had a listening device. And they, they're saying, oh, I can't hear what she's saying. She must have some kind of scrambling device. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, where do you get your ideas? Because some of them are so conceptual. There's one that we'll come to later that I love that, you know, after... Um, Biden was elected and mm. you drew the Statue, the Statue of Liberty mm. kind of coming to mm. from a coma saying, uh, you know, uh, how long's it been or mm. <laughs> what did I miss? Mm. <laughs> Which is just so kind of brilliant but so tangential. I mean, how do you come up with something like that? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I, I don't think there is a... Well... It's like you plug in the events, you know, like... So do you decide a theme? Do you decide what you want to um, do your cartoon to be about and then think about ways of, uh, of representing that? Yeah, or, or I listen to the radio quite often and quite often it'll just be a couple of words that someone says mm -hmm. and that, that'll flick off a cartoon and I walk when I'm thinking... Um, but uh, I sometimes think that sometimes I I have an original idea and then it goes one step more and then I think, oh, I don't know. And then I realise that the thing that I've ended up with, probably people got no idea what I'm talking about <laughs> because it, I know where it started, but they only see where it ended up. Mm. It obviously has been a very male-dominated scene mm. traditionally. Mm. I mean, how were you received in the cartooning community when you started as this um, um, woman? I 
Rod Emerson from The Herald got in touch with me after um, I had done a few and he, he was quite, you know, quite supportive. Mm -hmm. um, and there's people like Toby, like Toby Morris, mm -hmm. um, Chris Lane, that they've all been really great. Uh, the older cartoonists, probably around my our own age and older, they're, um, uh, they're not so happy. Less so? Okay. Ma Malcolm Evans wrote a really... Oh, no, though, to be fair, <laughs> Malcolm Evans attacked everybody. Don't just be No, I, I think that he was writing a, a blog about how the rest of the cartoonists in New Zealand weren't touching um, Israel and Palestine. And I have actually tackled that. Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes coming off not so well. But um, yeah, so tell, tell us about public feedback. Um, you know, what kinds of responses do you get from the public? Yes, sorry, we'll uh, go back to the process. Yes, uh, this, okay. this is a nice one. <laughs> Like, oh, I mean, it's quite. Uh, I, I think that this person had written into the paper the day after a cartoon had run on. Um, what was it? Oh, it was Trump. It was Trump, and you know how he was saying, "Fire up people back to their shithole countries that they come from." Well. I had said he was an alien and I had him in the circular part of the White House being shot into space and there's a woman in the foreground who's one of the female senators who he was slagging off at the time and I said, I think it was, yes, yes, we used cheeseburgers to lure lure it into the containment module and now we're sending it back to the shithole galaxy it came from. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I think that uh, somehow the person who wrote this, I suspect they probably like Trump, uh, <laughs> was not offended by him saying that... Um, these people came from shithole countries, but they are really offended by me suggesting that we should send them back to one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, now, this one, I got this last week, and it came in my private, uh, private um, messenger. So how do you deal with that? I mean, do you take it personally? Can you just bat it off? Uh, you, you know, how, how do you um, cope with that? If, if I'm prepared for them, I don't think too much of it. Um, but at the moment, I'm uh, not really up to it, mm -hmm. you know. And so recent, during the last conflict, you know, like the war that was going on in the escalation of Israel and Gaza. I did think of doing a, 
a cartoon about it, but I, I don't don't think at that stage I could take the flak mm, mm. because because um, you do I get threats sometimes. Don't yeah, you? Mm. you get you know mm -hmm. I'm going to hunt you down and kill you. Uh, but I the last no it wasn't the last time there was. I did a cartoon of um, Prime Minister Netanyahu and I think it was Brownlee and I had them from behind um, walking towards this war ravaged landscape, you know, and I had said that the character Brownlee was saying, I just want to assure you, Prime Minister Netanyahu, that I consider Minister McCulley to have been premature in sponsoring the UN resolution on Israel's settlement in Palestinian territory. He is no longer the New Zealand's Minister of Foreign Affairs. And I had Netanyahu saying, good, good, did you have him killed? And <laughs> he says, yes, Minister McCulley is dead, or he will be dead later this afternoon. <laughs> and I didn't think, that was too bad, <laughs> but uh, it, I didn't anticipate at all the reaction to it mm. and I was accused of being anti-Semitic and there was uh, a lot of hate messages around that. Um, and I remember it was <laughs> I remember it was the week before I was going to be inducted into the Massey Hall of Fame, mm. and um, they the people I, I think that Israel has uh, it's it sounds paranoid, but I know it to be true. Um, they have groups of people who are monitoring, sort of understandably, but monitoring for anything that happens mm -hmm. in the media, and then they hit it really hard. And um, so I, this had gone on for days of this quite punishing um, thing. And then in these days before this induction, they got into my Wikipedia page and said that I was a well-known anti-Semitic cartoonist. Wow. And so that's organised, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. And so the editors of New Zealand uh, Wikipedia put an alert on the account, you know, so mm -hmm. that at any time it was changed. But... Of course, anyone who was looking me up in the days before that uh, induction, because it was the first line in the entry, oh, wow. well-known anti-Semitic mm -hmm. cartoonist. And, um, yeah, I found that quite hard to, um, to deal with. To deal with. Mm. Mm. I, mean, I, I, I should say that I have come to the conclusion now that Cartooning about Israel and uh, Palestine is, I don't think that a cartoon 
can do it justice. You know, mm, they, it, right. it, it is a fairly blunt instrument. And uh, so I think what, it's probably better done in writing. Sure. Because what, what is the role of a cartoon or a cartoonist? You know, is it to entertain? Is it to be provocative? Is it to educate? You know, what do you see as being the job um, of a cartoonist? I... Well, I quite often think of it as to be a witness that to say, you know, especially I, I have seen what's happened to you. You know, it's a, um, and I think that is quite powerful mm. for, I, uh, like last week um, I did a cartoon and and it was about the race relations commissioner um, and the trouble we got in with giving... The koha, yeah. the mangamob, yep. And there seemed to be this general misunderstanding that people thought that he was paying them money when, in fact, he was following tikanga, you know, that this was really what he should have done that or food or you know whatever mm-hmm. um, but he wrote to me in the days days after that and said how punishing it had been and that right. it had been a great solace to him to see this cartoon mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. because what's I mean what kind of feedback do you get from politicians did they ring you up and say my hair doesn't look like that. <laughs> yeah, because secretly they quite, you know, often when you go into politicians' offices, yeah, they have yeah, cartoons that yeah. you know, are ostensibly quite derogatory mm. on their walls. So they're, they're secretly quite like the fact that mm. they get cartooned. I mean, do you get any feedback from, from politicians? Mm. Uh, not, not a lot. Um, I have, well, I think that Judith Collins has gone on TV and she was asked about cartoons and she said she didn't like, you know, mine and I can't remember who the other person was. She liked Jeff Bell's drawing. Okay. Her. Well, that's probably a badge of honour though, isn't it, as a cartoonist, that, you, that the politicians don't like, don't like your representation? <laughs> oh, actually, just while you're at the, um, the roughs. Yeah, so just talk, talk a little bit about your process. So these are obviously presumably still hand-drawn so do you really rough (laughs) (laughs) so how does it work so you start with a kind of hand-drawn sketch I I have a sketchbook I I have this one kind of sketchbook that I am attached to and when Japan City was closing down I went and bought every (laughs) everywhere I have enough to see me out (laughs) and I think when I finish my last one I'll quit (laughs) But um, I draw, draw in these very roughly, and I think uh, it keeps a liveliness to them, you know, the, mm-hmm. the drawings. I haven't drawn, I haven't actually drawn this, I think. Yeah, that was Peter Goodfellow dead on a slab <laughs> in Judith saying he's coming around now. I, I, but I've never drawn that up. So, oh. yeah. And, I, and then they get really rough. And I haven't drawn that one up either. 
So for every cartoon, how many rejected roughs might there be? Oh. Uh, I mean, that you reject, obviously, that you. Quite a few. Right. Yeah. Uh, oh. And so what's then that? what happens? Um, um, and then I do it another level up, so I draw it up to. I haven't drawn this one either. Uh, <laughs> I think that was when Claire Curran, you know, the National Party, had a trophy that had, and it was a toilet seat, and they had a photo of it round Claire Curran's neck. Oh, so they, okay. um, but, and so then I do it in the frame that it is going, and these days I then work over it in a, uh, on an iPad. Oh, okay. And so then it gets... Mm. Um, do you actually do you manually colour it before uh, you no, make it digital or not? I sometimes I use a dip pen. I am either really old-fashioned and have the dip pen or I do the iPad. Um, conscious that we're running out of time and I do just briefly want to touch yeah. on, on cats and dogs because yeah. uh, it's not all power in politics. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Sharon does um, also obviously do Munro um, and did some beautiful illustrations yeah. for um, Mike's book of, of cats and dogs. I mean, what's the, is, it, is it the same process? How do you capture an animal in, in cartoon? Uh, well, um, they're a bit further. Yeah, there we go. Yes. That, that's our cat and dog. Cat and dog. Uh, they don't actually dance like that. <laughs> in fact, Iris rushes at Munro and Munro sort of backs up, but he doesn't move. Um, he's quite a characterful cat, though. though so uh, I put words in his mouth. <laughs> and same with I That's her. That's Iris. She's irascible, though. <laughs> No, so Iris is a sore point, right? So um, Mike, who is my partner, you know, <laughs> uh, oh, yeah. um, Sharon drew beautiful illustrations <laughs> for this book, which is about my dog. Um, and somehow Sharon's dog ended up on the cover. And she tries to tell me that it's because Cooper was, you know, too handsome. He, to, he, uh, to okay. so, you know, he is too. He is too. Well, he was big and... He is very handsome, <laughs> and I didn't feel like I could take the piss out of him like I could out of Iris. So what makes a good kind of cat or dog to cartoon then, something with a bit of... Uh, quite a, a lot of expression. Yeah. Um, I do have... Uh, I, I also do mice. <laughs> And uh, I think there was a um, there, there was the one after that where uh, Munro uh, no Iris is doing up the buttons on her coat and talking about them being a bit of a fiddle when she was trying to chase the tractor. <laughs> Um, 
Now, I'm conscious that I do want to leave time for, for questions, but I, so I just had one more question. I mean, if you were to do a cartoon of, of your past year, what, what would that look like? Oh, my God. I don't think it would be a cartoon. Right. I, I think it would be a, a scribble. <laughs> Um, brilliant. Now, look, um, I'm sure that you have questions, so please, if you want to, to ask something of Sharon, um, you can put your hand up and we'll... Mike? Sharon, you, you obviously press the buttons of the public and you see some of the reaction. Mm. What attitude have you got with the editors? Do the editors ever say to you, Sharon, you've gone too far this time and we're not going to run that cartoon? Yes. <laughs> uh, not very not very often but um i do remember when i first started and i i had done a caricature of someone and bernadette courtney who was the editor at the time i she was looking at it and she said his nose looks awfully like a penis and she didn't feel comfortable with running it on a, <laughs> It, it, and it wasn't on purpose that, you know. And <laughs> then she took it out into the newsroom and she said, can anyone tell me I haven't seen a penis in quite some time, but does this look like a penis to anyone? And the consensus was that it did, but <laughs> they thought it was probably, you know, noses are fairly phallic. And, <laughs> so what happened? Did you just completely redraw it or did the noise get smaller or what happened? <laughs> I probably took a little groove off the end of it or something. <laughs> um, any other questions? Yes? Mm-hmm. What, what about the tone of a cartoon? I guess your cartoons could be considered feminine, mm. and what were they afraid of? Uh, I don't know. There's a, um, a Scottish cartoonist called, I think her name is Sandy McCall, and she describes those cartoonists as big-nosed cartoonists. <laughs> like... <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant juxtaposition of ideas. But big nose cartooning, you know, there there was a period when... um, I I have come to the conclusion about cartooning that you can actually... uh, When I started, there was kind of rules about how you were supposed to do it, mm-hmm. you know. Um, like Rod Emerson says there's a certain proportion of body is uh, head and, you know, and body, which is a lot shorter than real proportions. Um, but now I think you can do it any way you want. Mm. I'm, I mean... Um, I mean, do you think you do bring up a different perspective as a as a woman, or oh it? yes, yeah. yes, and I certainly cartoon on um, the subjects I choose are different. You know, I, I do some of the 
of you know like I obviously cartoon on many mainstream things, mm. but I do cartoon on those issues that interest me mm. quite. So it's more a question of subject choice than style mm. necessarily. Mm. Yeah. Um, anyone else have questions for Sharon? <laughs> <laughs> other questions? I mean, going back to the to the politicians, mm. presumably they have to come to come through you if they want to get copies, do they? So uh, who's yeah, or they can go. Who's got one on their wall? They've one. <laughs> <laughs> I tell you, this is quite often um, surprising. I did a cartoon of a judge who was giving women who were appearing in his court, in the family court, and he was kind of bullying them, you know, and there had been a couple of stories in the paper about it. And so I did a cartoon of um, him, which I don't so often do, you know, like Mm. someone, but he was high profile enough and he was, his era was egregious enough that Mm. He deserved a cartoon, and I had him leaning over the bench with his mallet, waving it at someone, and saying, "Don't make me come down there." And you know, and I, it ran in the paper, and then he rang up and wanted a copy of it, and he he was very pleased with it, and said that his colleagues had told him that it looked just like him. Wow, so that's fascinating. Isn't it? Completely missing the point. Yeah. Like, right. Yeah. Okay. So it was just happy to be yeah. considered kind of important enough to have yeah. made it into a Murdoch cartoon. And I did the uh, the bloke who was the head of the Property Investors Association mm. or something, and I had him as a raging bull, and uh, he looked quite demented. <laughs> and his wife rang up and said that she wanted to get a copy of it for his birthday. <laughs> Maybe it was a parting gift. <laughs> <laughs> um, I did want to ask, you know, you... Well, perhaps you don't have a political bent, but presumably, you know, you're mm. more so, so mm. socially or politically mm. left. Is it more difficult to be a political cartoonist when your team is in power? Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I... Um... I love the National Party. <laughs> I, they, they are such characters, you know. Like right. they, they are bigger characters, and I don't know if it's just I see them that way, but mm. um, they're great to cartoon, and I felt, for that reason, very sad. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Who was your favourite to, to, oh. to cartoon? Because well, John Key's quite difficult, isn't he? Because he's a, not that... He's he a, is. A little bit nondescript in a, uh, in a Tom Scott sense. described him as looking like a knife pushed through a scrotum. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I don't think his nose was that big. Like his, no. But um, it was the only distinctive thing about him. I, he had, although he did have his hair was quite well back on his head and it did give him a look of Julius Caesar. <laughs> so who, so who, you know, who was your favourite to, to draw or was? 
I liked Jerry Brownlee just because his personality was loud, to, mm -hmm. you know, um, and obviously like Judith Collins, like she's kind of a gift. <laughs> and Winston, Winston seems to turn up um, quite a bit. Yeah, but that, that's more because of what he does. Uh, right, than because of, so yeah. who's the most? I, I actually like Shane Jones. Oh, um, yeah, okay. Mm. So who, like, who's the most difficult to draw? Uh, well, Key was difficult. Ardern is very easy because, she, you know, she has big features mm. and, um, yeah. Mm. Mm. Probably got time for one last question if anyone has a question. Sorry, was it? Yes. Yeah. Thinking about the other people who commentate, I suppose, like Tom Sainsbury, <laughs> some of those other people, I mean, in terms of, um, yeah, you were kind of seeing some colleagueship, what kind of thing? Uh, it tends to be amongst cartoonists, so we, we have a, a group of, well, we have a chat, you know, a group chat that... Um, I don't think that editors know about, but... <laughs> right, because you're all from competing yeah, organisations. Yeah, we are from yeah. competing organisations, but we have, you know, there's bits of news goes flying around. And uh, I, like Jonathan King, who is here, um, you do feel... Um, I don't... I can't think of the word... It's a connection to other people who draw and particularly draw cartoons. Mm. Yeah. Fabulous. Look, thank you so much for that, Sharon. It's been an absolutely fabulous session. Um, you can all go out and buy How to Walk a Dog with Sharon's dog <laughs> on the front. <laughs> um, but yes, thank you so much um, for, for, having, for coming here and we've been, we've been so fortunate to have, have you and... Good luck with your ongoing recovery. Yeah. Yeah. That was Sharon Murdoch speaking to Nikki McDonald at the 2021 Marlborough Book Festival. A big thanks to all the writers that have supported the festival, as well as the audiences that attended in person or listened online. If you'd like to learn more, head over to marlboroughbookfest.co.nz. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, please like and subscribe and tell a friend. Thanks for listening. <laughs>